Before I begin, I want to say thank you for uh, inviting me to come back. It's always interesting because a lot of places will have you once, but to have you twice. And I want to let you know that when I got home on, uh, on, on Sunday afternoon, I showed my wife my shirt and she was surprised that there was no tomato stains on there. So I, I thank you all for not, uh, for not throwing tomatoes at me, but there you go. All right. <laughs> hey, I appreciate it. I really do appreciate it. But uh, in, in my studies uh, over this last month, I found a story of a professor who was finishing off his uh, experience and his career in the classroom, and he had finished his very last lecture. And for me as a teacher, I've been a teacher for 20 years at Maranatha, and I can only imagine what it will be like to one day give a last lecture. But in this story, the, the teacher is a very famous and popular theology professor who's given his life to teaching theology at the university. And as he's walking out of the classroom at his final lecture, he's walking out to a standing ovation. The students loved this professor. And as he opens up the door, he turns around, and the ovation goes silent. And they're clinging on to his last words. And his last words to his students are, Jesus is the question to all of your answers. A lot of times we think it's the opposite, don't we? That Jesus is the answer to everything. And, and, and some people take it a step too far in writing Jesus is the answer to some of their math equations. I don't know that Sandy Peltier would appreciate that too much. But uh, I've come across a lot. I've come across a lot of, uh, of, of answers and questions uh, in dialogue with students. And I've learned over the last 20 years of teaching that there are good questions. And unlike some teachers say, there really are some bad questions out there. Because I think that questions overall are a reflection of the heart. And if we ask in sincerity, in really seeking truth, then there really is no bad question. But I've come across students in the classroom and, and outside of the classroom as well. I've known people that, that ask in trickery. They, they want to try to make a mockery of Christianity. And, and in my opinion, those are sometimes bad questions because it's what comes out of the heart. And what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of the heart. But as a, as a student of Jesus, I call Jesus my teacher because I want to be a follower of Christ as a Christian. I'm very impressed with his questions and his teaching style because I've learned as a teacher over the last 20 years that one of the styles that we want to do is ask our students questions to find out where they're at in their life. And, and they'll give you a, a lot of answers and you can find out really quickly who is honestly seeking and who's trying to make a mockery based on the answers that they give. And so today, the message titled, Jesus is the Question, I, I simply want to take a look at some of the questions that Jesus asks various people in various situations, but I also want you to personalize these questions because I believe that Jesus is asking these questions to us today as well. And there is a context back in the first century to these questions that Jesus is asking and what he's trying to teach the people during that time. And I'll make a few comments on that context. But more so, I, I want to pull out some of the key questions that Jesus asks and simply ask you in your context of your relationship with Jesus Christ or your seeking him, how would you answer these questions? I find it interesting that Jesus' life is bookended by questions. Because when he's 12 years old, he's in the temple and his parents and family and entourage have, have, have come to Jerusalem for the Passover and they've gone away back home, packed up and left Jesus behind and they can't find him. And when they finally find him, he asks them a question, doesn't he? His question, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And yet at the very end of his life, he's hanging on the cross and he asks a question. Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And within the bookend of Jesus' life, from his childhood to his death, he asks 307 questions. And he's only asked by other people in the Gospels 183 questions. So Jesus far exceeds the, the questions that he asks people versus the number of questions that people ask him. 
But what I find even more fascinating is out of the 183 questions that Jesus has asked, he only answers eight of them directly. It's interesting to me, which means all of the others he's answering indirectly or sometimes with a question of his own. So let's take some time today and dive in and see what are these questions that, that Jesus is asking. And the first one we find in John 1.38, when he's meeting disciples for the very first time, and there's these guys that are seeking for him, and he turns around and asks them, what do you want? What do you want? Now that's a, a, a challenging question for us today as well, isn't it? What do I want? And it's interesting that disciples really wanted to follow Jesus. They had heard that he was the rabbi and they wanted to follow him. But he asks them, and I believe Jesus knows all things. He doesn't have to ask questions for his knowledge. He's asking questions to, to understand where others are coming from. And he asked the question of these first followers, what do you want? And I would simply turn that to you and ask you, what do you want? Joy Christian Center. Because I know for me, it's difficult to even ask that question sometimes. What do I want? And when Jesus asked me, what do I want? I have to pause and think. And I have to be very honest with you. Sometimes I don't know what I want. You might be honest with yourself and say the same thing, but you might not always know what you want. But Jesus would ask this question again in Matthew 20, 21. When he encounters the mother of Zebedee's sons, and you're familiar with this request, that the mother of Zebedee's sons brings her sons to Jesus and, and says, I have a request of you. And Jesus says, what do you want? Well, her answer is very clear what she wants. She wants one of her sons at the right hand of Jesus and one of the other sons at the left hand of Jesus. And when I spoke at my grandmother's funeral, I let everybody know that if I was Jesus, I would have put her at the right hand or the left hand of Christ. She was just a beautiful saint. If you knew my grandmother, you would agree. But it's not for us to decide who sits at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. And he even made it very clear that you need to be very careful with what you're asking. He says, woman, you don't even know what you're asking. Don't even know. So he asks, what do you want? The woman tells, her, tells him what she wants, but she doesn't even know what she's asking for. Can you drink this cup? Can you follow through and, and do the things that are asked of you? And maybe she walks away realizing that that was a big request of, of, of Jesus to ask him those things. But even beyond that, it was a big question of Jesus to say, what do you want? What do you want? And in a couple contexts here, whether it's the first disciples or, or, or the mother of Zebedee's sons, uh, Jesus is asking people who come to him, what do you want? He wants to know what you want. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. And sometimes that means coming clean and asking him and answering this question, what do we want? What do I want? And if we don't know what we want, then how can we, how can we even ask in prayer for Jesus to answer what we don't even know what to ask. And here's the beautiful part of it. The Bible does say that the Holy Spirit in those times gives us the words to pray and the way to, to ask for people and to petition for ourselves or petition for other people. And I do believe the Holy Spirit works that way. That's the good news. But it might also be good for us to come to terms with this question of Jesus personally to us. What do you want? And see if we can identify what do we want? What do you want in your next pastor? What do you want for the direction of this church? Uh, these, are, these are prayers for you as Joy Christian Center to be praying and asking God for. And be specific because God answers the specific requests. But I also find this question again in Luke 18.41. When Jesus is walking by and a blind man understands that Jesus has just walked by, and he wants to come in contact with Jesus. And yet Jesus asks the blind man the question that I believe is extremely obvious. I mean, what would a blind man want, right? 
But he even asked the obvious question. It seems obvious to me that the blind man would want to be restored his sight and be healed, and yet Jesus asks him anyways, what do you want? And so I believe that Jesus will ask, what do you want, even when you're asking questions beyond or seeking him for beyond anything you could ever imagine. But even in the obvious, in seeking even the obvious, Jesus will say, what do you want? Because he wants it to come out of our hearts to say, Lord, I want to be healed. Isn't it obvious that we're petitioning for healing for the sick? I mean, love naturally does that, doesn't it? Are we not praying for Norm to be healed? And yet, when Jesus asks, what do you want? My response is, Lord, I want Norm to be healed. I want healing in this church. I want healing in individuals. I want healing in their physical bodies. No doubt what I want, but here's the thing. Jesus is going to ask anyways. He's going to ask anyways because he wants to know your answer in your prayer life. So the, the first aspect of these questions is, what do you want? And we've seen three examples of what do you want or what can I do for you? some cases it's healing, in some cases it's come follow me, and in one case you don't even know what you're asking. But I do believe that we need to come to terms personally with this question. What do you want? And for every person that's here, you're going to walk away answering that a little bit differently. I'm going to walk away today answering that question a little bit differently maybe than some of you. But it's a question that Jesus is asking. What do you want? And then we find in John 18, 4 and verse 7, that when Jesus is being arrested, he's being set up and, and arrested, and remember Judas kind of sets him up here, he asks a question, who is it that you want? Another, some of the other uh, versions say, who are you looking for? Now it's interesting that he asked this question, but it very well may be that, that he was a common looking person. Maybe it was dark, they didn't really know where he was or how, but they knew who they were looking for. They asked Jesus. But I didn't realize that they asked him twice. Who are you looking for? He says, you found who I'm looking for. You don't need to look for anybody else. You found him. You got your man. If you're going to do something, take me right now. I'm not going to resist. I'll go with you. But think about this question from many people personally today. Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Not only what do you want, but who are you looking for? Now, I believe if you're here today, you're most likely looking for Jesus. Good news is, is that you can find him. Many of you have a personal relationship with him and have already found him. And maybe we need to take this question out to a community of non-believers and say, who are you looking for? And present them with Jesus and say, here is my best friend I've ever found. Here's my confidant. Here is the person that is my Lord and my Savior and my King. I have found him. You don't need to look much further for anything else or anyone else once you've found the king of your life. So who is it that you want or who are you looking for? I find that this question is repeated also in John 20, verse 15, when Mary Magdalene is at the empty tomb and she's crying because the tomb is empty. She doesn't know where Jesus is or what's happened here and it's interesting that she starts talking to Jesus right there in front of her. She doesn't recognize that it's him right away. She thinks it's the gardener. And Jesus asks her this question. Who are you looking for? And her response is, I'm looking for my Savior, Jesus. I, I came here to honor him, but I don't know where they've put him. And then eventually the, 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 the veil of her eyes is lifted and she sees Jesus for for who he really is. And a lot of people have asked me the question, I think it's a good challenging question, but people have asked me, well, how come in several different cases, and they're not shy to present the different cases in Scripture where the resurrected Christ appears to people and they don't immediately recognize him. And these are people that have followed him for the duration of their whole lives. And, and, and as far as the ministry of Jesus' life here, right, three years or so, they're committed with Jesus for a, a, a period of time. They know who he is, no doubt, and yet they're faced with Jesus after the resurrection and they don't recognize who he is. So how could that possibly be? And my quick answer to this is that nobody recognizes Jesus for who he truly is apart from the unveiling work of the Holy Spirit. 
That's how I see it. Uh, some people could say, well, it was dark or this or that, but I, I, I think it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't unveil anybody's eyes to see who Jesus really is in, until he's ready for that to occur. There's another question, a couple of questions in Mark 8, 27, and 29 that I think are, are worthy of, of examining what Jesus asks his disciples. In Mark 8, 27, and 29, he asks two questions. And one of them is, who do people say that I am? And in that time, the response is, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And some say you're a prophet. And then he turns this around and says, no, but who do you say that I am? They say you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And they recognize him and they articulate who he is. But I find this an interesting question to ask my students and ask people in our society today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, I could say, who do people say that he is? And I, I can tell you a long list of things that I've heard from Jesus is just a good teacher, or he's an avatar, or um, as, as Jehovah Witnesses will say, he was Michael the Archangel. Uh, that you get a lot of different answers. But at some point, we're all going to have to come to terms individually in our own lives, in our own hearts, and answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Because in one phrase, it's impersonal, and it's out there. It's beyond myself. It's out there. Who are people saying Jesus is? And I give you a long list, but at some point, it's going to become very, very personal. But who do you say that Jesus is? Who do I say that Jesus is? And I'm going to say that who, whoever we say Jesus is, this is an important question that's going to have a radical impact on our eternity. So it's a question that I believe we need to get right, and we need to get right as soon as possible in our lives and understand who Jesus is and what he did and surrender completely and fully 100% to that. Now, a follow-up question too, who do people say that I am or who do you say that I am? I see rearing its head here in Mark 10, 18, in Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. As Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, teacher, he says, good teacher, calls him good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is a question, why do you call me good? Now that's a great question. Because the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? Or what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't give him a list. Of, of 10 things right away. He, he's not a 12-step Jesus. Now, now, some of us would like the 12-step Jesus, wouldn't we? we? We'd like to give me the 12 things I need to do, and I'll go do them, and we'll be good. But, but Jesus is not a 12-step Jesus. He's a questioner. And so when a question is asked, he has no problem asking the questions back. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, he will eventually tell the rich young ruler, what he needs to do. But his first response is, why do you call me good? And I challenge people with this because I, I've never really met anybody who says Jesus was a bad guy. I've never really met anybody who says Jesus was a, a, a bad teacher or a false teacher. But most of the critics and the skeptics are agreeing that Jesus was a good teacher. But notice Jesus says, why do you call me good? And his next statement, no one's good apart from God. And I don't believe it's an option for us to separate the good teachings of Jesus that we like from some of the difficult things that are hard to swallow. If Jesus is a good teacher, he's a good teacher all the way, not only because of what he teaches, but because of who he is. But yet nobody's good except for God. Then what is Jesus saying here? Mm -hmm, we see where we're going. Either you accept all of Jesus' teachings, which include his theology teachings and his teachings that he is God, or we pretty much have to throw it all out. C.S. Lewis says something along those lines. You can accept him as a madman or as a demon of hell, but as a good teacher, he didn't leave that option for us. You could accept him then for who he truly claimed to be, and that is the Lord of Lords 
and bow down and worship at his feet. And C.S. Lewis is famous for really giving the challenge of the three options, right? The liar, lord, or the lunatic. I mean, either, either he's lying and going around saying, I am the Lord and I'm doing all these things. You see me, you see the Father. Um, get up, your sins, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk, and he has some kind of power to forgive sins. Either he's making these statements because he, he is God, or he's lying about it, deceiving other people, which is not good teaching. Or he's a lunatic, he thinks that he's God and has the power to forgive sins, and really doesn't. So we're, we're left, as C.S. Lewis says, with these three options. Either he's lying and deceiving people, which makes his teaching really bad, never met anybody who would agree that a liar is a good teacher. Or he's a lunatic in the fact that he thinks that he has all these powers and things and really doesn't. Or he really is who he claims to be, and that is the Lord. Now, there are some skeptics that have come recently. I know that Bart Ehrman is one of my favorite skeptics (laughs) who challenges the, 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 the Christian faith on a variety of levels mainly challenging the Gospels, and he would add in there that C.S. Lewis forgot another option. You have liar, lord, lunatic, or legend. But I find that the documentation of the, uh, the early documents of the, of, of the Greek manuscripts and that show that there's just not enough time gap for there to allow there to be legend in there. So I, I believe that we're still left with C.S. Lewis's challenge and of all of the options of what Jesus could have been, the best option is who he truly is, and that is the Lord. But no doubt he's asking these questions. Then we turn to the Sermon on the Mount. You'd think that in a sermon you would just be speaking truth. And if I ask questions, then the audience might respond. That's a dangerous tactic in public speaking, by the way. If I ask you a question and you respond, then in a way up here I kind of lose some control to the audience, don't I? And I was sharing this with my students. I said, you got to be careful with the questions that you ask when you're public speaking because you don't know what type of answers you're going to get from an audience. And one of my students chose not to listen to me. And they were at this uh, all-student body event where they're voting for the students. And this one student was representing another student who was running for class president. And they asked the question, this is not good, Who's all going to vote for so-and-so? Yay! And nobody clapped. In fact, there were a couple boos in the audience. And I responded and I told my students, I said, we need to talk about what I'm teaching you in speech and debate. Didn't I just say a couple weeks ago in one of my lessons, be careful with the questions that you ask the audience because you don't know what kind of response you're going to get. Now, I find it interesting that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, while he's giving a sermon, that he has no problem asking questions. And some of the questions are rhetorical questions, and you know the difference. If I ask you a question that I'm really seeking an answer, you'll share that with me. If I'm asking a rhetorical question, you might start scratching your head and go, okay, I see, I see, where, you're go- I see where you're going with that. And, and Jesus is, is doing this in the Sermon on the Mount. For in Matthew 6, 25 through 30, he says this, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Here's the question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? There's another good question. Can even one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I mean, take a look at those questions. Some good questions there. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? That's a rhetorical question because we all would agree that that answer is, yes, life is more than clothes. Yes, life is more than food. I certainly hope we would think that that would be the case and we would live our lives accordingly. And then the question is, why do we worry so much? When God promises to give us our needs, he does not promise necessarily to give us our greeds 
but he does promise to address our needs. And in that case, then why worry? See, I believe that worry is the application of an atheistic worldview. Consider that for a moment. Worry is the application of an atheistic worldview. So then my question is, why would Christians ever worry? Now for me personally, I've worried about things. Sure, I'm guilty of it. Every Christian that I know is guilty of worrying about something. And when we have kids, we really worry about stuff, don't we? And I recognize that that's the case, but I'm not recognizing that that should be the case. Because we should, in all things, be trusting God fully, 100% in all things. But for some reason or another, we go astray from that. And I believe that's why we need church. Huh? We come on a regular basis on a Sunday and get renewed and get refilled and continue to, to, to be encouraged to continue to walk that valley of trust in those cases where we feel like we might be losing it and we might be asking these questions and dealing with these things. I find it interesting that he says on this application of clothes in verse 28 and following, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. My guess is that Jesus is giving this Sermon on the Mount during springtime when everything is just flourishing. It's beautiful out there. And he's pointing to the birds of the air and saying, consider it. God's going to take care of them. How much more is he going to take care of you or the beautiful flowers? But having studied in Israel for about a month when I was at Biola, I learned something there about the vegetation in the land that applies, I believe, very specifically to this passage. See, in the summertime, there is a wind that comes about. They call it the easterly wind that comes about. It's extremely hot, and it burns up the vegetation, and it causes it to die. And then in the springtime, or late wintertime, springtime comes around, and it starts to grow back again. Now, I believe that all of God's creation at this point then is proclaiming resurrection, that it dies in the wintertime, and you see death coming in the fall, and it dies in the wintertime, and it comes back again in the spring, and that there's this aspect of resurrection being portrayed in God's creation. But now I see it even more what Jesus is saying. If, if you think about it, yet see how the flowers of the field grow? Do they not labor or spin? Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire. What fire? Well, could it be that easterly wind that's going to come around that next season and scorch everything, burn it up and cause it to die? Yet it'll be back again in the spring. And that, that proclamation of resurrection and demonstration in God's creation, I believe, is a good reason why we need not worry. Because if God's going to take care of our needs and not our greeds, then I know that my needs are going to be met. And God is much more creative than I am. And it's just been amazing to see how God's been creative in meeting for my needs personally. It's just been amazing. And, and I've seen this. It's just the creativity of God, how he shows up and fulfills his promises. It's just been really cool to see. And I know that you all have experienced that at some point along the line. If you walk with God very long, you see him fulfill his promises. And it's a beautiful thing to see that God has unlimited resources and incredible creativity <laughs> with the way that he meets our needs. But the sixth question in Matthew 7, 9 through 10. He says, which of you, and I think this is a rhetorical question as well, which of you... If your son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Now we know that the Father gives good gifts. But Jesus would ask this question, I believe, because there are some times when we pray and we receive things that look like stones. And we receive things that look like snakes and serpents. And it just doesn't seem like I'm receiving what I'm asking for. And Jesus says, in these times, do you not know that the Lord would give you bread? Do you not know that he would take care of you? Because there have been many times when I have asked for something and it looked like I got a stone. And I've prayed and prayed and prayed for a long time. And it looked like 
I was receiving a snake. And I think what we need as Christians is see through visions rather than look at visions. Because if you're looking at the answer to your prayer, you may see snakes, serpents, and rocks. But if we have see-through visions, I believe that we'll see bread and fish instead of what we might think is there. And so a reality is we just trust that even though I, I, I am seeing right now rocks and serpents, I trust that God is providing bread and fish because the Father will give good gifts. And so we need not worry, as we said before, and we need not be worried that God's not going to meet our needs. He is. And we need not be surprised at what we receive sometimes because sometimes what we're asking for, it doesn't come to the full fruition as we expect, but it's even greater. It's even greater down the road. And I'm just grateful that God has a bigger picture than what I have because sometimes my vision is very, very limited, but I'm just extremely grateful that God has a bigger, vaster, greater picture in mind, that he's able to see the whole display, but I'm just able to see the little pieces. It's kind of like putting a puzzle together, isn't it? You put the pieces together, and all I see is the green pieces and the red pieces and the blue pieces, and yet God sees the whole picture of what it's going to look like when it's all pieced together and how beautiful it is. So don't be discouraged when there's holes in your picture. God is in the process of filling those in, and the puzzle will get completed, and we will see, I do believe that's one of the joys of heaven, is opening up our eyes and seeing the complete picture and display of our lives and how it's been portrayed. When we were handed little bits and pieces, God saw a big picture all along. Question number seven. In Matthew 14, 31, this is a case when they're out there in the, in, in, in the boat and they see Jesus walking on water and Peter's there and he steps out of the boat, doesn't he? Peter, knucklehead. <laughs> he says, Jesus, if that's really you, let me get out and walk towards you. And he starts walking towards him. As long as his eyes are focused, you notice he is able to walk on the water. But as soon as he takes his focus off, he starts to sink. And Jesus' question to him, you have little faith, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Now, now there's two aspects to this question. You have little faith and why do you doubt? Coming together. When he says you have little faith, it implies to me that there are times in my life when I can have a great amount of faith and there are times in my life when I can have a little faith. And I look at faith as not necessarily something as a true or false question. Uh, in, in some aspect that that would be true, either I do believe or I don't. But in other cases, I look at faith as a gas tank. And sometimes it's extremely full. And, and usually on Sundays, I, I will do this for my own personal car as well as my own personal spiritual life. You fill up the gas tank, don't you? Now on Sundays, I do this for my car because I know I'm going to have a long week of travels. And if I do it on Sunday, I'm good for the rest of the week, right? But I think the same thing kind of on, 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 on Sunday in church. We kind of get filled up. But the problem is if I'm driving really far in my car and I only fill up once a week, I'm not going to make it very far, am I? And I think there is an aspect there of not just filling up on Sundays, but filling up on a daily, regular basis so that I'm always driving on a full tank. In fact, what I found is when I bought my car, the, the man who sold it to me told me, you know, this car will run a lot longer if you keep it on a fuller tank. There's kind of this general rule of thumb that I ought not let it go to empty. This is something my grandfather used to tell me. It does more damage to your car if you let it go to empty and then refill it, and then let it go to empty and then refill it, and then let it go to empty and then refill it. And I wonder if our spiritual lives are running the same. If, 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 if faith is like a gas tank, and I can be really full, or I can be empty, or I can be somebody of great faith or somebody of little faith, then should I maybe keep it full all the time on a regular basis? to the best of my ability. Now we know that there are challenges. We've already said that there are sometimes we worry, even though worry is an application of atheism. There are some times that we doubt. We recognize that. But I wonder, 
Would we doubt and worry less if we kept our faith gas tanks full more regularly? And likewise, why do you doubt? Jesus asked in Mark 4.40 a similar question. He asked them, why are you afraid? Now the context of this you'll remember is that the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is there in the back of the boat sleeping. And a big storm comes up. Now I had this interesting piece validated when I was studying in Israel. We went to the Sea of Galilee to, to do a couple of days study around the Sea of Galilee. And we asked the question about storms. Like how legitimate do you think that storm story really is? And the teacher at the time said, well, this is definitely something that really happened because we do have beautiful clear days where the, the, the boats are out there on the water and everything seems to be smooth and great. And then all of a sudden, up over the mountaintop can come a big storm and wind and cause huge 10-foot waves along that small lake. And you wouldn't even recognize it right away. It could be something that could happen very, very quickly, he says. And so it's important in the Sea of Galilee for the boats to go around rather than across. Because if you go across and that wind comes up, you might be stuck in the middle. And I was wondering, why were the boats going around the lake? And he explained, well, because we never know when that storm is going to come about. So you could imagine what it would be like then to be out there in the middle of the lake and all of a sudden this big wind comes up and causes these huge waves to come about those disciples would be terrified. And yet in the midst of their being terrified, Jesus is calm and sleeping. I don't believe that he's awoken by the storm. I think he awakes by the disciples. They're the ones that wake him up. And then his response, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And there you have it. Are, is your gas tank on empty? It's still you all the things you've seen me do, all these experiences we've had, you still? No faith? Still? Why are you afraid? And we may ask this question of ourselves as well. What is there to fear? Why are you afraid? I do find that the number one most stated command in all of Scripture is do not fear. It comes in a variety of different ways. But do not fear is stated so many times, I wonder if Jesus or God is trying to get our attention on something here. Maybe we ought not be afraid because we're putting our faith fully in Him. Another question I want to examine today is the way that Jesus responds to other people's questions. I think it's fascinating. As a, as a debate coach and a debate teacher, I, I teach a Jesus style of argumentation just because I think Jesus was a genius teacher. He was an incredible debater. He had people flabbergasted sometimes, and he has me flabbergasted sometimes in, in some of the things that I read here in Scripture and experience with him. And we come then in John 18, 33 through 37, with this trial behind closed doors and an interaction between Pilate and Jesus. And I get to wondering who's really on trial here. I mean, is, is Jesus really going back behind these doors to respond and interact with Pilate because he's afraid he's going to die and he wants to plead with Pilate to not crucify him and not exercise authority over him. Or maybe this is a little bit twisted. Perhaps it's Pilate who's really on trial in this situation because Pilate is going to come at some point face-to-face -face again with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when he does again, he's not going to have necessarily a chance to recognize who Jesus really is. But it's interesting to me. I'll, I'll take a look at it and see what Jesus does in this situation. But in verse 33, it starts, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus responds with the question, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Now notice, he doesn't straight up say right away, yes I am and here's five reasons why. But he responds with the question. And the question is for clarification. Is that your own idea? Like are you asking me out of your own heart and your own accord? Or are you asking me because others have talked to you? 
And, and this is interesting when I talk to my students, young people, about, about Christ and some of the things that they come up with. I have to ask them, did you find this on your own or did somebody put you up to this? And, and, and sometimes I, I realize that it wasn't necessarily them, but it was an atheist uncle or it was somebody who's really opposed to the Christian faith is a, is a, is a friend of theirs. And it was their influence on that student. I had a conversation with a student just this last week. We were talking about apologetics and we were having a dialogue and he says, well, my dad says this and my dad says that. And my response is, well, who put you up to this? Was it your dad or are these your ideas? And at some point, just like who do you say that I am, when Jesus asks that, it needs to be personal. Same thing here as well. Jesus wants to know from Pilate. Not that Jesus doesn't already know, but he wants to hear from Pilate whether am I going to be dialoguing with you on this for your own personal situation in your own personal life or am I dialoguing with you because of the people you're representing? Because there's an important distinction. Now Jesus or Pilate then would respond. When Jesus responds, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Pilate responds, and I imagine he has some major attitude with this response. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people. And chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Like, tell me, like, what, why are they doing this? Why would they want you crucified? Like, give me some reason. I don't need some reason to put you on the cross. Tell me, give me something. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate says, you are a king then. Now, I could have just as well been turned into a question. Are you a king then? But he makes it as a statement. So you are a king then, Pilate said. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate responds, I think most likely arrogantly, what is truth? Now that question, what is truth, is something that the students, young people are asking, and we see that it's all over the place in our society. Uh, perhaps the answer to that question or a, a time to comment on that question or to, to really dive deeply would be for another sermon another time. Right now, I want to focus not so much on the questions people ask Jesus, but more on the questions that Jesus is asking. Because I think it's very important to recognize that Jesus is asking questions and asking them for our personal application. Lastly, I want to point out a, a series of questions that Jesus asks that I find extremely interesting. And they're found in John 21, 15 through 19. In Jesus' dialogue with Peter after the resurrection. So you remember Peter denies Jesus three times. And then after the resurrection, Jesus and Peter come together again and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Now, I, I think that there's a reason why he asked Jesus, three, or Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Is I see a direct correlation with the number of times that, that Peter would deny Jesus. If you deny me three times, then you're going to need to get reinstated here. I'm going to at least ask you three times. For each of those times that you denied me, I'm going to ask you face to face, do you love me? Now, in, in my thinking of this, sometimes I, my, my brain, I'm studying, I, I see things kind of in, in a fun light. But I wonder how Jesus addressed Peter. Sometimes I start thinking, like, how would this interaction come about if Jesus approached Peter in a Clint Eastwood style. You know, dirty Harry, right? Because you've, you've got this situation where just before, like a few days ago, Peter denies him three times. And now Peter's face to face with Jesus. And I can imagine the dialogue going something like this. You know, Peter, just a couple days ago, you told three people that you never knew me that you'd never seen me, that you'd never been with me. But here I am. I came back from the dead. And if I were you, Peter, I would recognize that I'm the most powerful person in the world. I am the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And if I were you, Peter, I would ask myself 
this one question. Do I love Jesus? Punk. <laughs> well, do you love Jesus? Punk. And I turn this around to you and make it personally, don't I? Because I'm going to ask you as we leave here today, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus, punks? You say, how dare him call me punk? Well, the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we're all punks, aren't we? And the good news is that Jesus loves us enough to die for the punk. I also want to point out something that I find very interesting from this. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there it is. I love it. <laughs> but there may be some other reason why Jesus asked three times. And I find this fascinating. I asked a, a student of mine, we were studying the, the fallacy of equivocation in, uh, in speech and debates. And, and equivocation just real simply means that we're using the same word, but we're giving it different meanings. And so we really can't communicate because we're giving the same word different meanings. And if we do that, there's confusion. And I ask the students, I say, can you provide me a real-life example of the fallacy of equivocation? And without hesitation, a student raised his hand and said, Mr. Basiska, love. I said, how? How is love the fallacy of equivocation? And he brought up C.S. Lewis's book, Four Loves. And he pointed out how when we say that I love somebody, that I actually mean different things. And he's right. I mean, C.S. Lewis brings up the agape love, that's unconditional, the phileo, brotherly love, the uh, eros, which is romantic love, and the storge, which is like an affectionate, general type of love, like I have my favorite shoe type of thing. So we've, we've got these four loves, and yet in English, we've only got one word for it. It's love. And yet, clearly, I love my wife differently than I love my students, and rightfully so. If I didn't, there would be major problems. <laughs> so the reality is, when I say I love you, what do I mean? But in the Greek, there are these four words, and I find this fascinating. When Jesus asks Peter the first time, do you love me? He says, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? But when Jesus responds, he says, yes, Lord. I phileo you. I love you in brotherly love. So then Jesus responds again and asks him the question, do you love me agapoli? And Peter would say, I love you. Lord, you know I love you, but I love you phileo. And then finally Jesus comes down to his level on the third time and says, do you phileo me? Do you love me phileo? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I do. I love you phileo. It's interesting to me that there are different words in the Greek Bible there for the word love. And what Jesus does is he comes down to Peter's level. He says, if you are not willing to love me agapoli, are you willing to love me phileo? And I believe that that aspect of our relationship with Christ, the beauty of it, is you've got the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God in human flesh, coming to you and say, you know what? I'll take the best you have right now. I, certainly, I want you to love me, Agapoli. If you love me, Phileo, that's a good start. It's a good start. And we find ourselves in, in a relationship with a God who meets us where we're at. And that's good news. So here's what I want to do. I want to close our time together by giving Jesus the last word and then I'm going to pray. Simply by, by, by saying, giving Jesus the last word, I simply want you to close your eyes. And as I read these questions that we've gone through, we've actually gone through 10 questions today, and some of them we've said in different formats and different contexts, and we repeated them. But I want to walk through the 10 questions, and in the quietness of your own heart, I want you to embrace these questions. And ask yourself, if Jesus were in the room right now, and he is, because he's everywhere present, right? We've got the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. 
we've got the next week and maybe even the rest of our lives to continue to pursue the answers to the questions of Jesus. And I would invite you to do so if you've never done so before. If there are 307 questions that Jesus asks, that's a lot of questions to spend our lives studying, isn't it? But just in the quietness of your own heart, close your eyes, bow your heads, here are Jesus' questions. What do you want? Who is it that you want? Who do you say that I am? Why do you call me good? Why do you worry? Will the Father not give you good gifts? Why do you doubt? Why are you afraid? Am I your king? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, as we wrap up our message today, I'm grateful that you are not a 12-step Jesus. Thank you for not just giving a simple formula to work out, but to give us deep, thought-provoking questions. Lord, I pray that we would not skip over the questions when we study your word, but we'd take a look at them and personalize them. And Lord, that we would find in studying your questions that the answers are found in the way that we live our lives. So Lord, we recognize that you are the greatest teacher who have ever walked this earth. And in so doing and recognizing, Lord, we recognize that your teaching style would be the best teaching style of any teacher. Lord, we thank you for your questions. May we, with your help, have the courage and ability to live out in a way that's pleasing to you, the answer to your questions. Thank you, Lord, for being the question to all of our answers. In your name I pray, amen. I confess bowing